Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate you being here. This week I am interviewing Jennifer Style. Now she is an author. She's written three books. Um, the first one was um, a true story about her experience as an American moving to Yemen and running a newspaper. Super, super interesting. The other two are fictions, but based off um, of her life um, a great deal. So I had to interview her when I had read about her. Um, just the experiences she's had as a, you know an American going to Yemen, an, an area that's definitely been war torn, you know, recently, and how it was running a, a newspaper there. While uh, while she was there, she was actually taken hostage uh, by a sheik. Um, she married the U.S. Or excuse me, she married the British ambassador to Yemen, um, and she had a, a child. He was involved in a um, suicide bombing um, from someone. Um, then she moved around quite a bit, moved to Bolivia, wrote another book um, talking about um, the um, Jews that moved there after and during the Holocaust. Um, then she moved to Uzbekistan. So we're going to get into just a, a ton, a ton of information here. Are just some really fascinating stories. Um, you know, just, just in that quick little, you know, 30 second blurb that I talked about, you know, from Yemen running a newspaper and getting, um, captured, um, to suicide bombings, to Bolivian, um, Jews, to Uzbekistan, just a, a fascinating person. And it's, it's just a, it was an honor to speak with her. Um, I do think that you're, you're really going to enjoy, um, just the, the story she has here, um. Without further ado, here is my interview with Jennifer Style. Uh, we're here today with Jennifer Style. I, I can't get the name correctly, but Jennifer Style, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of want to start at the beginning. Obviously, you're an author and you've done um, some really cool things, but let's let's just start at at growing up in Massachusetts and and how how that time was. Okay, um, so I grew up in Groton, Massachusetts, which is a pretty small town. Um, and my childhood was largely happy and uneventful. Um, so I don't know how I became a writer. When you were growing up, did, was that something you thought about at all? Were you creative in, in that way or, or just kind of took you for a surprise once you got older? Well, I mean, I was always a reader. I was a really early reader and I was an obsessive reader. Um, so I spent a lot of time at our local library reading through everything I possibly could. Um, and I would walk home with, you know, as many books as they would let me carry out of there. Um, I loved our local library. I'm a huge fan of libraries. So I grew up reading, um, constantly. Uh, and I think I always kept a journal. I've always kept a journal, but I didn't really think of myself as a writer because I had great plans to become a star of the stage and screen. So mostly the stage. So I, I loved theater growing up and I did a lot of performing. And, um, and that's actually what I ended up majoring in in college was, was theater and performing. Um, so, and I did work as an actor in my, my first career. 
Yeah, I read that that you after college you you took off to the West Coast and was an actor for four years or something like that, right? Yeah, well, you've done your homework. I try, um. I try. <laughs> yeah, so so I mean that's I'm sure you're a great actor, but I know that you are a great writer. So let's let's kind of get to to that area. How, how did your career in in journalism start? Um, well, let's see. So. As you mentioned, I was I, w- I moved to Seattle after after college, and so that's where I was working as an actor. And I was getting increasingly frustrated with the kind of roles that were available to young women at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always, you know, I was in my early twenties, and I was always cast as the young ingenue or the prostitute with the heart of gold. And I wanted to, you know, play a biochemist or or someone with a brain. Um, and so I started writing almost in response to this um, and signed up for a couple of local workshops in Seattle and eventually realized that in my undergraduate years, I hadn't studied writing and that I wanted to study it more. And so I went and got a, an MFA at Sarah Lawrence um, as a creative writer. And then I was finishing that degree and I was thinking, gosh, I'm now going to be really, really deeply in debt and still not be able to get a job other than um, waitressing. Um, so I should probably sort out, you know, what kind of job I'm going to get to pay back this back. And at the time, I happened to be dating a journalist. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, I was living around the corner from Columbia University at the time. So I applied to their journalism program. And they were crazy enough to let me in, although I was completely inexperienced as a journalist. Um, I guess they figured I had an MFA I could write and maybe they could teach me the whole reporting thing, um, which they did. Uh, So that was a great move, actually. I I had an amazing time at at the Columbia School of Journalism and and then got a job in newspapers. So that's kind of how I started off as as a journalist. I started off in newspapers and then I actually switched to magazines eventually because I wanted to go back to performing. I missed the theater. And when you're working for a newspaper, as any journalist will know, um, you can't really do anything else with your life because you, at that time we all had pagers because this is before cell phones dating myself here. Um, So, you know, I could be on my way home and I get paged by my editor or by the cops who'd say, you know, we've got a triple homicide in one of your towns, you have to come back to work. Um, So you couldn't commit to anything else because you could be called at any minute. Um, And I loved working as a daily reporter and I learned a lot about just how the world works, how small towns work, how healthcare works, how schools work, how towns work. You know, there was just a a lot that I I learned on the job and I loved it, but I, I was not entirely happy. And I think that's why I switched to magazines so I could perform in the evenings. Um, I was in New York at the time, so. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and in, in 2006, you, you you started doing some some interesting things and and traveling and and going to places that maybe most people don't go. So I guess the question that I have to kind of figure this all out is, in the whole timeline, when did you when did you marry your your husband? Was were you did you decide to go to uh, Yemen on on your own and then? Me or or how did this all happen? When, what's the timeline with with marrying your husband? Okay, so um, I I don't do a lot of life planning, and a lot of my decisions have been somewhat impulsive um, mm-hmm. or spontaneous. Uh, so I mean, going to journalism school was 
I, I applied three days before the deadline and that's when I made the decision. So kind of all my decisions have been a little bit like that, <laughs> um, but they've worked out in the end. So I, in 2006, I was still working at the week and a friend called me from Yemen. So I hadn't met my husband. I was alone in New York city um, and had no intention of leaving New York city. And a friend of mine wrote to me and said, I'm in Yemen. I've been doing a little bit of work for this newspaper called the Yemen Observer, but the journalists don't have any training. And would you be willing to come over and train them? And I said, well, I can't just give up my job and my apartment and et cetera, and move to Yemen, um, which I knew nothing about at the time. Uh, but I have three weeks of holiday left and I could come over and for three weeks and do a training course. And they said, great, come over for three weeks. So I went over for three weeks and it was so exciting. I had never been to that part of the world. Um, I loved Yemen. I loved my journalists. They were incredible people. They were super ambitious, super excited to learn, super smart and curious and the kindest and warmest people I'd ever met. So, at the end of the three weeks, the Yemeni editor of the newspaper said, you know, I really love the work that you're doing with my staff. I would really love it if you would take over the newspaper as editor in chief. Now, no one in their right mind would have looked at my CV and said, you know what, you should be running a newspaper. You know, and at first I said, well, you know, I can't do that. You know, I'm making more money in, in New York and I can't live on what you're offering me. And he's like, well, you can't hear. Um, which was true. Uh, so I went back to New York, you know, I originally turned him down, but then I went back to New York and I went in my same gray office um, where no one really even asked me questions about Yemen or what I'd done there. And I thought, I think it's time for a change. I, I, I hadn't planned to move to Yemen. I hadn't planned to do that with my life. Um, but it was clear that this was going to be a really interesting experience. Um, and I figured if it were a total disaster, I could write a book about it. So um, I gave notice. I packed up everything I owned and moved to Yemen um, and took over the newspaper. And thus began the most interesting year of my life thus far, for sure. And the most challenging and also the most rewarding Um so I, you know, I had a really tough time, but I also was constantly learning and I had a lot of help from my Yemeni reporters, you know, who were teaching me all about their country and their political parties and their culture. And I was learning Arabic. So they were teaching me all of that and I was teaching them journalism. So it was kind of an even exchange uh, at the end of that year. So I'd been there for a year when my husband arrived in the country and he was at the time the British ambassador to Yemen. Um, it was his first ambassadorial post. So I met him soon after he moved to the country, but I was pretty close to leaving at that point. And so I left and went to New York for three months where I sold my first book and then moved back to Yemen to finish the reporting for it and ended up eventually moving in with my husband. So uh, so that's kind of, that's how we met. So we met in Yemen and we met in the garden of the French ambassador's house on Bastille day. So hmm. we never forget the date. We often forget our wedding anniversary, but we never forget <laughs> the, we never forget the anniversary of the day we met. 
So, I, I mean, I, I, you, you kind of answered one question I had, which is how well you were received. Obviously, some foreign journalists and American journalists coming in and kind of taking over. It sounded like they, they welcomed you with open arms. What about kind of the rest of, of you know, the, the culture there and stuff? I know that obviously there's probably some shock, but um, I mean, were you well received within the country as a whole? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, Yemen was the friendliest, most hospitable and warmest place I had ever traveled to in my entire life. Um, so this is what would happen to me when I walked down the street. You know, I walked down the street and um, I would dress, you know, as close to Yemeni style as I could. In other words, I was covered up. So I was modestly dressed with like long skirts, long sleeves. Um, I, you know, I, I, I wore no makeup. I had my hair up. Uh, so, um, but I, everywhere I went, it was clear. I was, they can tell you're a foreigner just from the way you walk, you know? So, um, but they, everywhere I went, people would say, we love you. Welcome to Yemen. We love you. We really love you. Welcome. To, and I would get that constantly walking down the street. I mean, you started to feel like you were a celebrity because that's how you were treated. Um, and I'd never been anywhere that people said things like that to me on the street. Like that does not happen in London, let me tell you. Um, so it made living there really comfortable for me. And, you know, when I first moved into my own house in the old city, I lived alone in this m big house in the old city of Sana'a which is still the most beautiful place I've ever lived in my entire life. It is the most exquisitely beautiful city in the world. Um, I doubt I will ever see anywhere as beautiful. And I moved in there and very soon after I moved in there, um, the neighbor across the street rang me. Who knows how he knew the telephone number for the house, but he rang me and said, you know, you must come over for tea. And I did and he, played me Kenny Rogers cassettes, <laughs> not, not the kind of things you would, you would expect, but you know, everyone was so friendly and, and they kind of, they, look, they would look after me. Like they knew who went in and out of my house. Um, my neighbors would offer to carry enormous jugs of water for me back to my house if I, I looked like I was struggling. Um, so, I mean, it was just, it was just a really wonderful culture and really wonderful people super generous. I mean, the second I was introduced to anyone, they would say, you know, hello, my name is Muhammad. Will you please come to lunch this Friday? And I would go to lunch and they'd want to give me all their best foods. And then they'd want me to come to lunch every Friday. And they would, you know, bring me gifts. And then these are people with no money, with nothing, but they would give you anything. You know, it, it was not a materialistic society. And I love that. They were just really, really kind people. Um, so I really, I feel like, you know, we've lived in a lot of countries now, but I still have a serious soft spot for Yemen. Um, it's just a pretty special place and they've had such a hard time. Um, but we ended up staying there for four years and we only left because we were evacuated. Right. Otherwise we wouldn't have left when we did. Right, yeah, and you talked about you know, obviously we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the issues that you had, but I know that Yemen's obviously had its, its fair share of, of strife and, and issues. So the first thing I think about is you're talking about how pretty that city is, is, is everything still intact there or has that been kind of messed up? 
Yeah, no, everything's not still intact, unfortunately, um, because Yemen's been in the middle of the civil war. And unfortunately, neither side in this civil war is uh, really seems to have the interests of Yemeni people at, um, at the center of what they're doing. So, and I don't think the outside world has helped much by supporting say the, the Saudis who are bombing Yemen, but also the Al Houthis um, have been, for example, terrorizing the women I know who still live there. Um, so both sides are really oppressive and violent um, and have basically been destroying the lives of ordinary Yemenis. Um, so it's a really tough situation and I'm still in touch with all my Yemeni friends. Um, because once you make friends with the Yemeni, I mean, you are friends with them forever. That is, that is it. They are your friends for life. They are loyal. Um, and so I have friends still in the old city and, you know, they write to me about the bombings and parts of the old city have been destroyed by Saudi bombs. Um, and a lot of these were sold to the Yemenis by the U S and the UK. Um, so, uh, so there's some responsibility on our part as well, um, for this. Um, so it's, it's really, it's tough there. You know, I, food, food security is a big issue. Um, healthcare is a big issue. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. There's, there's a massive humanitarian crisis. Children are starving. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just hope it eventually gets, gets resolved. That's, that's awful. Definitely talking about how, how kind the people are. I mean, at that time, was was it a, I guess, a free press and, and you didn't have any kind of issues with with uh, oversight or, or was that an issue too? Um, very interesting question. So um, when I was running the newspaper, um, I mean, the, the history of, of journalism in Yemen is that every newspaper was associated with a political party. So every newspaper had a very clear political bent, a very clear bias. And what I was trying to do with the Yemen Observer was introduce the concept of uh, objective journalism, which is what I was taught at Columbia, which is you know, trying to get at the truth by reporting all sides of a story. Um, that doesn't always mean that both sides are equally correct. Um, so it's not simply making it a 50-50 thing, but, but really getting at the truth of something by reporting mm -hmm. everything you can discover about it. Um, and so this is one of the things I was working on with my reporters and it was new to them, this whole concept of not including their own bias and not including, and also the whole concept of sourcing um, which they they hadn't realized you actually need legitimate sources for stories. And um, if you're reporting a health story, you need to actually have peer reviewed research behind it. You can't just claim something without substantiating it. Um, so these are the kind of things I was working on with them. And also, I mean, I think the reason the editor of the newspaper had started it in English, it's also in Arabic, it was in both languages. Um, was that he wanted the rest of the world to be able to learn about Yemen. And that's why he wanted to make sure there was an English edition um, and that that was online so that people could read about Yemen as, you know, because so much of the Western media wants to talk about Yemen as a haven for terrorists. And of course, um, 
while there is, of course, a gram of truth to that, that it's also most people are not terrorists. Most people are amazing. Um, and so he wanted the rest of the world to know that. And so he was really focused on good news and he wanted us writing good news. But of course, bad news happened and I would want to cover it. Um, so we would get in arguments about that. Or sometimes he'd come to me and say, I want you to write an article about these people because they're advertising in the newspaper. And I would mm -hmm. say, well, we don't cover advertisers. That's not part of my job. There's a, there should be a wall between advertising and editorial. And actually this was, this was an argument we had with some regularity because mm -hmm. there was no kind of history of dividing editorial and advertising. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of insisting on that division. Um, so I had a really funny relationship with the guy in charge of advertising because he'd kind of waltz into my office um, and, you know, want me to write things. And I'd say, no, I, my reporters are covering legitimate news. I'm not sending someone to cover like the launch of a new cologne or whatever it was. Um, so, uh, but for the most part, Ferris, my boss, let me do whatever I want, except, and I think part of the reason for that was the president, my boss in a somewhat huge conflict of interest, was also working for President Saleh at the time. And so Saleh was also running for re-election and my boss was traveling with him, which meant he didn't have a lot of time to keep an eye on me. So I think a lot of the time, you know, I had relative freedom with what I could write about because he wasn't paying attention. The only times I got in trouble was when people complained. If he got complaints, sent to him, then I would hear about it. I mean, there are certain things that I knew that we couldn't write about. For example, um, you don't criticize religion, for example. I mean, this is a country that's pretty much 99.9% .9 Muslim. You do not criticize the religion, um, which I respected. So I did not do that. Um, but I could write about a lot more than I thought I could get away with. So for example, I was able to write editorials against female genital mutilation, um, which still happened in parts of Yemen. And so I wrote that and no one gave me any grief about that. Um, I could criticize the government um, as long as I didn't mention the president by name. So if I said, you know, the government should do this or the government shouldn't do that in an editorial, because I wrote the editorials most weeks, um, I could get away with it. But I just couldn't say, you know, President Saleh, you know, is doing terrible things. I couldn't say that because um, that really would have gotten me into trouble. So, I mean, there were a few. And, but the actual times where I came in direct conflict with my boss were few. I remember once there was something I'd written. All right. So Saddam Hussein died during my first year there. And my entire office went into grieving because the Yemenis loved Saddam Hussein, loved them. So this was news to me and um, had to somehow cope that, with the fact that my reporters were all grieving while wanting to write factual things about Saddam Hussein. And um, I wrote this editorial about him that my boss then insisted we pull and we got in an argument about that. And I did end up pulling it because he made the point that he finally said to me, his final word was, well, you can run it if you want, but the office might get bombed. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe it's not worth it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
No, I, and I want to I want to make sure that we don't gloss over your your first book. You were talking about how you went went home to to kind of get that published, and then you went back. Um, but the first book, the woman who fell from the sky, uh, it, it, that's correct, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, f- from my understanding, that's kind of a memoir, probably talking about a lot of the things that we're talking about. Your kind of your experience, uh, but if you would just kind of give us a brief summary of what that book is. Sure. So that first book um, was is just about the year that I was running the newspaper. It's it's just it's a memoir about that one year specifically, and I wrote it because first of all, that year was far too interesting and somewhat hilarious um, for me not to share with people. And you know, I made so many mistakes. I uh, learned so much, and there was just so much to write about Yemen and my reporters. And I wanted the rest of the world to know my reporters and know them as human beings and not as terrorists. They're, you know, really good people. Um, so, so that's kind of what propelled me to write the book. And um, I, during the time I was running the newspaper, I would write for an hour every morning over coffee before I went to work and just a journal. And so by the time I started working on the book proposal, I already had 1200 pages of journal. Um, now, a lot of that was about food and exercise, which is something that I was criticized for in early drafts. They were like, okay, you write too much about food. I'm like, well, food is important. Food is good. Um, Yemeni food is amazing. So, um, but I did end up cutting a lot of it, but there's still a fair amount in the book. So that, that's what my first book was about. And the title, The Woman Who Fell From the Sky, actually comes from a Yemeni poem. There's a, there's a book of poetry called The Book of Sana'a about the city of Sana'a. And uh, the epigraph in that book is part of that poem. I'm trying to see if I can remember it. She was a woman who fell from the sky in robes of dew and became a city. I think that's correct. I don't have it in front of me. Um, And so it was about kind of how, you know, this woman fell from the sky and became the city of Sana'a, which I thought was such a beautiful image, so appropriate for the book. Um, and also I felt kind of like I'd fallen into the city as a, a stranger from the sky or elsewhere anyway. Another, another thing I want to make sure we cover, you're talking about, uh, you talked about, you know, evacuating and that's why you left. Um, another thing I kind of need the, the timeline here. You, you spoke about uh, in, a, in one of your emails about getting kidnapped while you're pregnant and then your husband being involved in a suicide bomber. Are these separate events? Are these the same event or... Tell me a little bit about, about that. Okay. They are separate events, totally separate things. So when I was six and a half months pregnant with our daughter, I was hiking with four other women outside of Sanaa in an area that was supposed to be perfectly safe. Um, I had a bodyguard with me because I was required to. And uh, my husband had 10 bodyguards. Um, just, just to so you understand my relative importance compared <laughs> with my husband. Um, So, and the other women had guards from uh, the French oil company uh, that that some of their husbands worked for. Um, So there were five of us, we were from five different countries, I think Romania, France, Great Britain, uh, Norway, and me, the US. And the only common language we had was French. So we were speaking French, we were hiking in the mountains and we were about two and a half hours walk from the road when um, we heard, actually we'd stopped for a picnic and heard our guards shouting with some other Yemenis. And we thought, okay, well that's normal. Um, 
uh, and they're probably just sharing their food or whatever. And then, um, you know, the, the Sheikh, who's the leader of the local region, cocked his AK-47 at us. And my bodyguard told me to approach. Um, we, we had kind of jumped to our feet and thought, well, we just need to get, if we're on, maybe we're on their land and we're trespassing and we just need to move. Um, but uh, the Sheikh apparently thought we were spies and uh, looking for gold, he said at one point. Um, so my bodyguard introduced me to him. I was the only one of us who spoke any Arabic. So I spoke to him and I said, you know, we don't want any trouble. We're just, you know, we're walking. And um, he was, you know, sometimes when you look at someone who has mental illness, you can kind of tell that they are not living in the same world that you are. And I think this shake was just not entirely mentally well. His eyes, I, I felt like he couldn't see me. I, he couldn't see me. And my bodyguard said to him, look, like she's a woman. We don't treat women like this in our country and she's pregnant. And, you know, he was like, well, you know, I don't see any evidence of that because I was wearing very loose clothes, of course. And um, uh, so they held us, I mean, I won't give you the blow by blow, but they held us for a day. Um, and which fortunately is not very long in the grand scheme of things. You know, we weren't held for two years or anything like that. We were held for a day. Um, but when you're surrounded by eight men with AK-47s and you know that foreigners had recently been executed um, in another part of the country, uh, you can't help but kind of freak out a little bit. And I did. So, I mean, the, the women I was with were amazing. No one panicked. No one was in tears. Everyone was exceptionally calm. Um, and I, they were very protective of me because I was pregnant. Um, and... I was, I called my husband because I lost my phone somehow in our arguments with the shake. And so I borrowed the Romanian woman's phone. Thank God I knew my husband's phone number by heart, called him. He got on the phone with the minister of the interior. Um, you know, normally I wouldn't have been able to reach my husband because at the embassy, they weren't allowed to take mobile phones in because of security risks. So I called his mobile phone thinking I'm never gonna reach him. Um, he, he'll be at the embassy, but he happened to be having a meeting at home. Um, and so he answered the phone and immediately, you know, got people mobilized to come look for us. And I mean, when I called him up, you know, there was no emotion. There was no, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. None of that. It was like, where are you? Is Muhammad with you? Give me the phone, you know, put, put Muhammad on the phone. Um, very kind of, you know, business-like. And there were a few times where they said they were going to let us go and then didn't. Anyway, they finally did, but at the end of the day, let us go. And the, the French sent trucks in for us to collect because we were in the mountains. We weren't near a road. Um, so they sent these kind of four-wheel vehicle, four-wheel drive vehicles to come get us. And they took us to the road um, and Tim's bodyguards had come to get me. And of course he couldn't come get me because his bodyguards were with me and he couldn't leave the house without them. So the bodyguards came to get me. And, and during the whole thing, I mean, I, you know, at one point, I'd, in a way, being pregnant kept me from freaking out because I started freaking out and started having what felt to me like um, contractions. And I thought, I'm going to miscarry in the middle of nowhere in Yemen in a country without 
the most fabulous medical care. And um, I was, it was clear to me that she would not survive if I, you know, if I miscarried at that point. And um, so I thought, well, you know, if I don't want to miscarry because of stress, I need to calm down. Um, and so I did yoga breathing until, until I could calm down, but it was really clear to me that I couldn't freak out. Freaking out was just not an option if I wanted to keep the baby. Um, and I think that's what kept me calm. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, when I got back, um, my husband, you know, was not in tears or anything like that. And I said, well, weren't you worried? And he's like, worried? I didn't have time to worry. I had to get you out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm lucky that he was so able to be efficient in it, but that's, you know, his job. So, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like he, yeah, it sounds like he's, he might be, he might be halfway decent at his job then, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and that kind of brings us to his, his attack by a suicide bomber. So, and this happened, so this happened later. So I gave birth to my daughter. She was fine. Um, you know, remember nothing of being kidnapped. And uh, she, uh, we brought her back to Yemen. Um, and, you know, of course, my friends were like, you're taking your daughter back to the country where you were kidnapped. And I was like, yeah, because most people are really nice. And, you know, we want to keep together as a family. So I brought her back to Yemen after she was born in London. And she was around six months old when Tim was on his way to work one morning and a suicide bomber leapt onto his car. And the explosion was strong enough that um, his head landed on top of an eight story building nearby. So I hope no one's eating breakfast. Um, but anyway, so that was, fortunately he was in an armored car. Had he not been in an armored car, he would have died. He would have been blown up. It was a very powerful explosion, um, but he was in an armored car and his Yemeni driver was highly trained and kept driving with body parts on the windshield and, you know, trying to, you know, you know, completely freaked out as you would be um, in such a circumstance and got Tim to the embassy. Um, and again, Tim just went straight to work and, you know, making sure his staff were safe, making sure, um, you know, he talked to everyone in the embassy and told them to stay home if they weren't in yet, things like that. So um, after that, this was kind of at the end of our, I think we'd been there about four years at that time. Tim wasn't done with his posting. So he had to stay, but Theodora and I were evacuated and we had nowhere to go because at the time we didn't have a home outside of Yemen. And we didn't have a place in the UK because Tim was recently divorced and um, had lost his home there in the divorce. And so Theodore and I moved to Jordan by ourselves so that we could be within a direct flight to Yemen and Tim could visit us. But that certainly, I hadn't planned on becoming like a single parent of an infant in a country I had never you know, lived in before, but we managed. Uh, we, we managed to have a life for ourselves in Jordan for four months while we waited for Tim to finish his posting. And then we were all in London after that for a little while. Yeah. So rather than, I feel like most people, you, you know, you had a kidnapping and then your husband, you know, got attacked by a suicide bomber. Then you had to go live by yourself. 
rather than say, this is nuts. I am out of here. You decided that to write a book and that book was the ambassador's wife, uh, kind of a, that I, I hear that you were kind of inspired by your kidnapping uh, to write this book. So tell us a little bit about that book. Sure. So right after I came back from being kidnapped, um, the, the foreign office had asked me to write down everything that happened. So they had a, you know, an accurate record of what had happened to us. Mm -hmm. So I immediately wrote down pretty much every detail of what had happened to us. Um, so I had that already written down and I, I was at the time looking around for what the next book was going to be. And I knew I'd always wanted to write a novel. Um, it was kind of a, an accident. I ended up writing a memoir. I mean, I never had any illusion that my life was interesting enough to write about um, until I was running a newspaper in Yemen and thought that I might have a story to tell. Um, but once I moved in with my husband, it was clear I could no longer write memoirs because I was now, you know, this deeply world, weird world that I was thrust into, this, this diplomatic world, I couldn't write about it um, without getting my husband in trouble, basically. So I thought, okay, well, I, I now have to switch to fiction if I wanna protect my marriage um, and my husband's career. Um, and yet this kidnapping seemed, I guess I think when, every, when, when terrible things happen to me, I, I want them to be meaningful. I guess all of us humans, we're, we're all meaning makers and we want our life experiences to mean something and we want to make something of them. So I guess I thought something good must come of this kidnapping. Um, and I thought, so the book started with a series of what if questions. So I thought, what if this happened and they didn't let me go? What if they took me somewhere completely inaccessible behind a mountain pass? What if um, I didn't have an infant, but I had a 13 month old and she got left behind with my husband? Um, what if I were handed a starving Yemeni child while I was in captivity? And so that's how I came up with the story. So the first scene, it starts with the kidnap. So not giving anything away there. It starts with the kidnap, but then um, after that alternates between what happens to the British ambassador in this story. So, you know, the book takes place in, of course, a very familiar context. There's a British ambassador and an American wife, but she's a visual artist, unlike me, who, you know, I have no artistic talents whatsoever. Um, I did a lot of research. And so um, the rest of the book is complete fiction, even though it takes place in this world that was very familiar to me. Very good. So tell us just a little bit about um, your time with Bolivia. I know that it, uh, it inspired your, your next book, but tell us first about Bolivia and then we can kind of get into the, the topic of that next book. Sure. So we moved to Bolivia in 2012 because my husband got a job working for the EU. So he took, he was on secondment from the foreign office, which means that the foreign office loaned him to the EU's new diplomatic service. So he was the EU head of delegation in Bolivia. So basically the EU ambassador to Bolivia. Um, and this was really exciting for him professionally because it was a whole different organization to be working for. And also my husband speaks a lot of different languages. He got to use uh, all his European languages, talking to his staff. You know, he had, he was running a delegation of, you know, of a really diverse group of people. He had um, Bolivians and Germans and, Belgians and you know pe people from all over Spaniards. So 
So that was really interesting for him to be working with a variety of people and being able to speak Spanish and German and French, et cetera, at work um, was really exciting for him. So he, he loved working for the EU. So that's what took us there. Um, I was busy working on The Ambassador's Wife for my first few years. So I wasn't at first actively looking for a new book idea, but I mean, first of all, landing in La Paz, La Paz is at 12,000 feet. Um, so the altitude is quite serious. Uh, it takes, you, you kind of don't know how you're gonna react to altitude until you're there. Some of the strongest, fittest people don't do well at altitude and sometimes couch potatoes do fine. So you just don't know until you get there. And we were okay, we were all okay in that none of us get sick, but it really wipes you out. You know, I was exhausted most of the time and you know, happiest if I were in bed at nine o'clock because I was just done by then. So, but it was a stunning place to live. You're in the middle of the Andes. I just remember the first time we landed in La Paz and I looked out the airplane window and it was the most breathtaking sight I'd ever seen. I mean, I was exhausted and, and you know, uncomfortable on the airplane. And then I saw that and that all vanished. And I just thought, oh my God, I'm about to land in the most beautiful place. But uh, so early on um, in our time in Bolivia, my husband came home one day and said, you know, I just had this fascinating meeting with the Austrian consul. And did you know that there were about 20,000 Jewish refugees here in Bolivia during World War II and around the time of World War II? And I hadn't actually known that. I, I knew a fair amount about the Jewish diaspora in other places and elsewhere in South America, but I hadn't read anything about the refugee population in Bolivia specifically. And I thought, wow, that must have been a really difficult life to come from, you know, people that had careers and lives and families and, in Europe um, and suddenly to be in the middle of the Andes um, at altitude, you know, which is hard enough. And it was a completely different culture. They didn't speak the language. Um, they didn't have any way of navigating these new cultures and places. Um, and I thought that must, what must that have been like? And, you know, began to kind of imagine that community and, and the various things they would have endured. And, and you know, you go through all the trauma of uh, being persecuted by the Nazis and, and losing most of your family and your community and all of that. And then, then you end up in La Paz and have to start all over um, without any of the things you need to start over, like the language and help and things like that. Um, so soon after that, I met a man at another Bolivian, actually it's probably a, I think it was Spanish National Day event or something. I met a man named John Glanter who, whose parents came from a small town in Poland, which then became part of Ukraine and then the USSR and then Ukraine, I think it's part of Ukraine now. Um, but his parents lost their two-year-old daughter and their parents um, to the Germans and Ukrainians. And most of the Jewish population of their town was murdered. And somehow they managed to escape. And his mother's account, I read his mother's account, which she wrote in Polish, but was translated and is in 
a Holocaust archive in Israel now, um, but I managed to read her account, which is one of the most horrifying, sad, awful things I've ever read. You know, what she endured and, and the ways in which that she tried to keep her two-year-old safe and things like that. Um, and then she and her husband ended up fleeing to Bolivia after the war. And my friend John was born in 1946 in La Paz. So he was born right after his parents arrived in Bolivia and grew up there and is still there. And so he told me his family story. And then when I became interested in writing a book about this, uh, he introduced me to other survivors who there are not very many left in La Paz. It's a, there's still a Jewish community, but it's small. Um, and, but I, I began interviewing other people and especially there was this one man named Guillermo Wiener who was named Wilhelm Wiener when he lived in Austria, but he came over when he was eight years old on a ship with his parents and learned Spanish from his landlady's kids, um, grew up pretty much assimilating into Bolivian culture, which was not the case with a lot of refugees. A lot of the refugees kept very much separate, partly because of language issues, um, but also probably for safety and security. You know, they felt safer with other refugees. Um, um, so he inspired a lot of what became my next book, which is Exile Music, which is my most recently published novel. Um, and so it's based on, it's, it's fictionalized. Um, but it's based on the experiences of these of these refugees. Yeah. So, the, the, one of the questions I would have is: I know you you were talking about refugees that that moved to to South America during or after the war. Um, did Bolivia did they only have you know Jewish refugees refugees or because I know that there was you know, after the war when Nazis and stuff were fleeing, a lot of them went to South America too. Um, so were, was any, you know, was there any Nazis that had also fleed to Bolivia? Cause that would be terrifying to have went all the way there and then kind of hear rumblings that there's, that there's Nazis now here in Bolivia too. I know that I know Argentina for sure. That's, that's where some of the, the most, you know, infamous of uh you know nazis had went but, but what about bolivia yes that's that's true and these were the these were the same questions i asked um when i was first doing the research um and yes there were nazis in bolivia um most notably klaus barbie ended up in bolivia living there for quite a long time um he was on the cia payroll um and he was also being supported by the bolivian government who you know wanted to apparently learn from his interrogation tactics, meaning torture. Um, so was in Bolivia for quite a long time. He was known there as Klaus Altman and everyone knew who he was. Um, so it occurred to me, I mean, that actually plays a, a big part in my novel is, um, you know, I, I was imagining what it must have been like to be one of these Jewish refugees and to be walking down the streets having thought I was finally safe and to run into someone like Klaus Barbie, like how traumatic that would have been. Yeah, I don't want to take up a ton more of your time, but I do want to talk about where you're at now. You know, you mentioned that 
but you're having a little bit of internet issues because now your husband is posted in Uzbekistan. Um, <laughs> my first question would be, how does he get all of these, all of these crazy posts? Uh, I mean, does he ever say, you know, just let's just do Canada this time? How does <laughs> how exactly does 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 he get all of these far flung places? Well, he asked for them. I mean, he you know, you have to in the foreign office, you have to apply for a posting. So you do choose where you apply to. You're not guaranteed to get it. Of course, mm-hmm. it's quite competitive, especially at the higher levels. So um, but my husband likes countries where there's a lot to do. And he likes countries, you know, with really interesting, unfamiliar cultures um, where there are lots of different, exciting things going on, countries in transition, countries starting new, interesting projects. So, you know, he loved Yemen, he loved Bolivia, and he loves Uzbekistan. I mean, we, we love pretty much everywhere, but I don't think he'd be, actually be interested in working in um, Europe, for example, or Canada. <laughs> I mean, Maybe, but um, uh, um, so yeah, we moved to Uzbekistan in 2000 and uh, goodness, when did we move here? 2018, I think. Um, And we'd been here for seven months when my daughter and I were once again evacuated. (laughs) This keeps happening to us. Um, So we were evacuated in March at the beginning of the pandemic because the, the foreign office wanted us to be in the UK so we'd have access to medical care if we got sick and my daughter then of course got COVID-19 in London um, and I did not, uh, which is somewhat miraculous given that we were in a temporary flat and sharing a bed at the time. I didn't, I didn't end up getting it. Um, and then we eventually moved. Our only permanent home is in France. And after five months in London, we were pretty lonely and we thought we'd be happier in our, in our house in France. So we, we switched to France and have been there for the last seven months. And then right before we were supposed to come back to Tashkent, um, I came down with COVID-19 and then gave it to my husband because I like to share things with him. <laughs> and so we both had COVID-19 and we both recovered, thankfully. I'm very grateful for that. So now we are finally back in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. And at the moment, I'm talking to you from quarantine because there's a government mandated two-week quarantine. Mm-hmm. So we are both working from home um, and putting a lot of strain on the internet. <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to ask you just two more questions. Uzbekistan, I, I'm sure there's somebody listening that's never even heard of it. They probably don't even know that that's a country. So just briefly tell us a little bit about the country and your experiences there. Okay. So Uzbekistan, there's, there's a lot of stands. Um, we're surrounded by stands on, on every side. So we've got, we're surrounded by Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan. Um, gosh, I hope I'm not missing any of them. Um, what? I don't know which ones you're surrounded Kyrgyzstan. by. There's, yeah, Turkmenistan. Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, there's all kinds of them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my husband was coaching me from the other room. He, <laughs> he, he, uh, Pakistan is one of the only double landlocked countries in the world. It has incredible produce. Um, so the most incredible apricots and melons and pomegranates. I've ever had, you know, really amazing fruit and vegetables, everything's seasonal, Um, it's all grown here. Um, They are renowned for um, textiles. Um, They grow a lot of cotton. They um, make a lot of beautiful tapestries and um, embroidery, really beautiful embroidery. 
uh, it was part of the USSR. So, um, and so it's, it's really interesting actually, because, you know, it's also a Muslim country, um, but it's a Muslim country in a completely and utterly different way than Yemen was. Um, so, cause this is a Muslim country um, that was under communism for a long time and the religion was suppressed. Um, and so people were not allowed to go to the mosque and things like that. Um, so you have, you know, it's very strange because it, it's are Muslim, but there's also, there is vodka, like there is, you know, in most of the former USSR. And, um, and so there is thinking um, the women in general don't cover, although some people do, but, but most people don't. Um, they dress very, you know, the women walk around wearing whatever. Um, it's, a, it's a country that seems to be kind of awakening from, you know, in, in many ways in terms of business and, um, you know, coffee shops opening and the country opening up more. And, and there's a lot of, you know, exciting things going on here. Um, you know, we've, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back into exploring it because I've been away for 11 months. Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, when I was starting to kind of settle in, we were evacuated. So, so there's a lot I don't know about this country yet and a lot that I'm looking forward to learn. I love traveling around it. That's, that's really cool. No. So, I mean, yeah. with, with Uzbekistan, how, how obviously you're, you're in there with a, a totally different time with, with COVID and things. So, um, you know, it makes it different, but how, how has the, the people been as far as welcoming? I know when it comes to, um, you know, former Soviet countries, they're not necessarily known for the hospitality, but, but uh, how, how has that been as far as the people? Um, actually, the people have been wonderful. Um, you know, everywhere that we've been, they've been really lovely. It's it's very, I mean, I, I for example, um, there's a local art gallery that exhibits a lot of work by women from all around the country. So they'll send in like their hand embroidered shoes or other um, Uzbek um, craft crafts. They will sell from this gallery it's a gallery and a store and like you know the first time we went there you know they served us tea you know they will make you tea when you go in a store mm -hmm. um there's there's a uh definitely a culture of hospitality here where you know you get it's they drink a lot of green tea so you'll go in places and they'll give you a little bowl of green tea um so yeah thus far people have been very hospitable and and warm um so i mean this doesn't mean that they necessarily trust us right away, but I think we have to earn that. Um, but yeah, no, so far we've had a, a really wonderful experience oh, with, with the people here. That's really good. That's really good. Well, you, like I said, you've been really generous with your time. So do let us know how we can find um, those, those three books. Um, sure. So you can find my books pretty much anywhere books are sold. Um, if your local bookstore doesn't carry it, they can order it. Um, you can also get it on uh, bookshop.org. You can get it on amazon.com. You can get it um, via my website, jenniferstyle.net. So my jennifer, S-T-E-I-L.net. Um, so yeah, any, any local bookstore, you know, I encourage you to pick up copies at your local independent bookstore. Um, and yeah, and you know, let me know what you think. I'm on a lot of social media, so I'm pretty easy to track down. 
Yeah. Well, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. When I read, you know, your your blurb and, and all these things that have happened to you, I was thinking, man, I hope I hope this conversation is as good as as I it dream in my head with all these cool things she's done. And I think that it's exceeded expectations. So I really appreciated your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really been fun to talk with you. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you again. And that was my interview with Jennifer Style. Hope you enjoyed that one. I absolutely enjoyed speaking with her. Just to, to hear, you know, the just the life she's lived, the culture she's lived in, um, the different things she's experienced. You know, the thing I took away from this is you know, there's a lot of world out there. And, you know, the heart of things, most people just, uh, you know, want to want to be friends and want to be hospitable. Um, she's been a lot of different places and she found a lot of really great people, had a lot of very interesting experiences. Obviously, some of those experiences weren't with, um, you know, the, the greatest of people. But as a whole, it was just a it, it was just a it, it's just a, a life that we all benefit from hearing more about. I think um, do check out her books. There's, there's three of them uh, as of the time of this posting. Um, they all sound extremely, extremely interesting. So urge you to check those out if that's something you're interested in. Thanks so much for being here this week. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. And uh, take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.